Great Gildersleeve. Lux <laughs> yeah. presents Hollywood. Now cut that out! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our announcer and the grand boy, William Forrest. Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I'd like to welcome you good people here on behalf of our sponsor. We are one of the few remaining radio shows that's fortunate enough to have a sponsor. So, uh, if you enjoy yourself during the next half hour, you could do all of us a big favor if you would, and that is sometime this week, stop by your neighborhood RCA Victor dealer and pick up a 27-inch television set or a record player <laughs> or something, because we'd like to be working up here next year at this time. <laughs> Well, as you know, maybe you do not know, but this year we are starting a new time. We're heard now on Friday nights on NBC, immediately following Bob Hope. And as you know, in addition to a new time, Phil's on his own this year, out for himself. So what do you say we all get together and give a real rousing welcome to a real swell guy, the man who discovered the South, Phil Harris. Let's hear it! Seriously, I can't tell you what it means to me to have you come out here all by myself. You're all laughing and smiling and applauding and glad to see me. And I just want to tell you I love you for it because I need it. <laughs> I've been with Jack Benny for 16 years and there ain't no money connected with that job. <laughs> Old dry pockets, boy. <laughs> Takes you in a room on Saturday night, gives you a fast course of love and bloom and you've had it. <laughs> I got off to a bad start when I married Alice. They told me she has money, but I'll be damned if I can find her. <laughs> I've looked everywhere. <laughs> hey, I want to thank... Isn't it wonderful having all these... Uh, uh, the sailors, all these guys from the Navy in here? <laughs> Especially to the max. I gotta be with it because I was in the Navy during the last war myself. I fought the Battle of Catalina. You're laughing. We lost eight lobster traps. Hey, they had a very unique way of uh, selecting their enlisted men according to what they've done in private life. When I went into the Navy, for instance, I went in with a couple of buddies of mine. One of these guys was a street cleaner, and they put him on a mine sweeper. And this other guy I run around with, he was a construction guy, tore down buildings and everything, and they put him on a destroyer. How I ever wound up on a ferry boat, I'll never the story about the guy walked the barbershop. The guy walked the barbershop, walked up the barber, says, how many head of him? The barber says, three. The guy went out, he don't come back. Next day, he comes in again, he says to the barber, how many head of him? The barber says, three. The guy goes out, he don't come back. 
Now the barber's getting nuts, you know. He's on his feet all day and he's clicking to them scissors, you know, and standing. And, you know, some of them Bakersfield guys coming to show you the sky says stuff. Calls the boot black uh, over and he says, say, the barber says the boot black. He says, every day there's a guy comes in here and wants to know how many ahead. And he says, I tell him he goes out, he don't come back. He says, if he does it tomorrow, follow him. I want to know. Next day, the guy comes in, walks up to the barber, says, how many ahead of me? The barber says, three. The guy walks out, the boot black follows him, comes back in about 20 minutes. The barber says, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Boot black says, to your house. <laughs> hear about the guy who used to part his hair in the middle? This guy used to part his hair in the middle. See, he got tired of it. He went down, he had the barber put the part from here over to here. Then he had to give me bangs in the back and bangs in the front. The guy said it got awfully monotonous because people kept coming up whispering in his nose. <laughs> Here. <laughs> well, I got one more. Let's see. Oh, this is a cute joke. You hear about the drunk that fell out of the 12 story window? Oh, this guy's blind. Oh, blind drunk, and he falls out of this 12 story window, and he hits boom on the ground. There's a big crowd around. He gets up, and he's brushing himself off. The fellow walked up and says, What happened? He says, Damn fine, though. I just got here. <laughs> You know, uh, whatever little success, ladies and gentlemen, that we've attained, uh, uh, of course, uh, I want you to know that it isn't due to one or two people. We have a wonderful organization, and just like in the Navy or the Army or uh, the Waves or the uh, WAX or the any other organization, you've got to have uh, a competent organization. You've got to have a bunch of guys, a whole unit going for you, and that's what we've got. And I'm very happy and very proud to tell you that I have one of the best organizations, I think, in radio. For instance, everyone you see sitting on that stand does an outstanding job on his or her particular interest. <laughs> <laughs> see, there's things that I know that you don't know. <laughs> now, you take the leader. He's okay. He, um, we're very happy about him because he's a genius, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm, now, now I'm back to level. I mean, we think that he's going to wind up with being one of the greatest composers we have in this business. Already he's had two of his things play in the Hollywood Bowl. He has been doing some of the biggest motion pictures for ten years. He has been nominated for the Academy Award six times. He was nominated last year for the beautiful directing and... and uh, arranging of all of the wonderful music that you heard in that great picture, the Hans Christian Anderson story. This is Walter Sharp and his music. <laughs> You think that Navy's rough, huh? Oh, <laughs> Hey, I got some guys. I'd like to take time for you to meet all the guys in the band because everyone is important, not because I'm going to pick a couple out. We have boys in here that are originators of the Dixieland. A lot of the guys who were with the, the Bobcats, a lot of fellas. All of them are important, but I got a couple of guys I know you'd like to meet. I have one fellow I'm going to introduce to you that... Uh, Loaded, don't need nothing, but he, um, <laughs> he comes over here because he likes to be around me. <laughs> and uh, he has his own show, and I want you to listen to it. Incidentally, it's on Friday nights. It's on later tonight, I'm sure, about 11 o'clock, I think. I'll check within a minute. But the one and only Albino Ray, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> what time is it, 11 or 10.30? 10? 
10 on KMDH. I want you to catch that show. He's on with the King Sisters, and they do a beautiful job. So if you're around the television at 10 tonight, you tune in on NBC. Here's a guy that worked with my father. And uh, <laughs> Dad used to tell me about him. He says, Phil, he said, this boy has a terrific eye this year. And uh, I think if we can ever get him out of the circus, he might amount. So, <laughs> since that time, he went on to great heights. His records are now, ladies and gentlemen, are collector's items. Some of the records that he made years ago. And the ones that he made now, no, I'm not kidding you. And the ones, of course, he does a little touch-up job here. But no, <laughs> the one and only Red Nichols and his five credits. All it is, because without her, the program wouldn't be possible. I'm not going to eulogize going to a big thing. I'm only going to tell you she's not only the most beautiful gal in the world, but this kid's got talent, too. Alice Faye! I think her. about me, ain't you, honey? Oh. <laughs> we have a guest. I say a guest. It's the first time he's been on with us this season, but we use him a lot. In fact, we use him every opportunity, but that's pretty tough because this guy does all of the important things in television and in radio, and I know that you remember him from the wonderful work that he does on the Bob Hope Show. Ladies and gentlemen, hi, Otterman. Yes, sir. <laughs> be a little young and too good-looking for this show. <laughs> There's a kid that steals our show every week. We're very happy about it because he's got a lot of talent. My wonderful kid plays the part of Julius Abruzio, the grocery boy, Walter Shepard. <laughs> we have a newcomer to our program. Very happy. He's very important. He's made a lot of pictures. I know that you've seen some of his pictures recently on television. A very important actor. We're very happy to have him a part of our little company. He plays the part of William Alice's brother and does a dandy job, Mr. John Hubbard, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> those wonderful singers that make all those commercials on the Benny Show have been with us ever since we started. The Four Sportsmen, ladies and gentlemen. Lee Elliott Lewis. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you guys for coming in to see us. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you do, for God's sake, laugh, will you? Thank you. Boy, we have some Curly. Hey, Curly, wait till you hear what I did. I bought a kangaroo. You what? I'll make a fortune. This guy had two kangaroos, and I bought the one that boxes. A boxing kangaroo? What's the matter with you, Elliot? You're crazy or something? You can't make no money with no boxing kangaroo. Should have bought the one that knits, huh? <laughs> RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, and first in television, presents the Bill Harris Alice Faye Show.
enjoyment here is the Phil Harris Alice Fay Show, transcribed, written by Ray Singer, Dick Chevrolet, and Ed James, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, John Hubbard, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, Walter Sharp and his music, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. Tonight's little aberration is aptly titled, How to Repair a Living Room, or There'll Be Lots of Sand for the Concrete Mother, I'm Coming Home with a Load. <laughs> the stars of the RCA Victor program, Alice Fay and Bill Harris. It's morning in the Harris household, and Phil, shy, modest, and retiring, is singing as he heads for the kitchen. Wait a minute. Shy, modest, retiring... Well, that's what it says. <laughs> I dream of Harris with the light brown hair. <laughs> Voice like an angel. Talent he can spare. <laughs> He's so... Oh, hi, Alice. How's my little love bug this morning? Oh, Phil, I was going to surprise you. You raised my allowance? <laughs> <laughs> no, I baked the cake. Oh. You're disappointed. Look, honey, I love you, but let's face it. You don't know how to bake. Why, Phil? You're a wonderful girl, a beautiful wife, a gorgeous mother, and your cakes would make a great lining for a bulletproof vest. <laughs> you think they're heavy, huh? Okay, I'll take this one out of the oven and show you. The idea of saying my cakes are heavy. Well, this one's as light as... Why, it doesn't weigh a... <clears throat> Phil? Yeah? Help me lift it out of the oven. <laughs> Too much to lift alone, huh? No, it isn't either. It's just stuck. I tell you, my cakes are not heavy. Okay, they're not heavy. But how come we got the only stove in town with bow legs? <laughs> uh, well, I think my cake looks beautiful. But, honey, it's lopsided. It's higher on one side than the other. Well, that's not the fault of the cake. The floor slopes down. The floor... Oh, kid, you've been standing over this stove too long. Well, it does. Ever since you and Elliot bounced that derrick around the living room, this whole side of the house slopes. Hey, you want to know something? You're right. The floor is a half inch lower than the molding. I'd better go outside and have a look. I'll get out there and crawl under the house and examine it. Be careful, Phil. You be careful. While I'm under the kitchen floor, don't drop that cake. <laughs> I better go with you. Maybe I can help. Huh? Okay, come on. I know there's an opening outside here somewhere. It should be right around. Yeah, yeah, there it is. I'll just take the screen off and crawl through. Uh, nah, that ain't gonna work. I can't make it through there. My shoulders are too broad. <laughs> Maybe you can get through, Alice. I don't think so, Phil. My hips are too... <laughs> I'll make it. <laughs> it is a tight squeeze. Yes, yeah. Hey, wait a minute, honey. I'll grab your feet and give you a little shove. Come on. Just a little more and you'll make it. Just... Hi, Curly. Oh, hello, Ellie. What you got in your hands? <laughs> Alice's feet? 
<laughs> what happened to the rest of her? I'm shoving her under the house. <laughs> Oh. Nags you too much, huh? Oh. <laughs> nah, don't be funny. You see, the kitchen floor is sagging, and it probably needs a new support. That's why I shoved Alice under there. <laughs> I know materials are expensive, but this is ridiculous. Bill, I found out what's wrong. You and Elliot broke one of the beams. We did? I just got here. Last week, Elliot. Last week. Oh, 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 oh. Hey, and, and you'd better get a contractor right away and have it fixed. Well, uh, don't worry about it. Me and Elliot will figure something out. Hi, Elliot. Hello, Alice. Bye, Elliot. See you later. Charming girl. <laughs> you know, Elliot, I've just been thinking. What? Now, what's so hard about fixing a broken beam? We don't need no contractors. You know something? I'm going to make a deal with you. You help me? And I'll pay you $2 an hour. All right. But you know the union rules. I got to get paid from the time I left home. Okay, okay. When'd you leave home? When I was 16. <laughs> uh, the way I figure that's uh, 18 years at $2 an hour. Uh, I would come to, uh, let me see. All right, stop. You'll never make it. <laughs> Now, wait a minute. Yeah. What? All we need is a jack to raise the house, and then a new beam and some cement. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a cinch. Come on, kid. Let's get this stuff. <laughs> hey, Curly. It's tough work, jacking the house up like this. It's hot, too, even with our shirts on. Will you stop complaining? Just keep pumping on the jack, huh? We got to get the corner of the kitchen up a little higher. Come on, pump it up, pump it up. <laughs> Here, Curly, I think we're lifting the corner of the house a little too high. Elliot, it ain't even close to level yet. Besides, Alice is in the kitchen, and she's going to let us know when it's even. Go ahead. Pump it up, come on. <laughs> Hey, fellas, stop raising this side of the house. You got it too high already. Well, why didn't you come out and tell me? I can't. Every time I reach the kitchen door, I slide back into the dining room. Lower it, Phil. All right, all right. Come on, Elliot. Got it too high. Oh, yeah. Now, look, we got to let that jack down, but wait a minute. What? Slow. 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 Just ease the jack down so that it don't slip. Huh? Easy. All right, go ahead. That's it. Slow. Slow. I think we just have... Good bo- morning, Philip. <laughs> I think I'll scalp him. <laughs> One hair at a time. Either one of you fellas see my arm? (laughs) Willie, you bird brain, look what you did. You made the jack slip and the house settled back again. You know, Alice told me you were out here. 
What are you two doing, anyway? We're trying to raise the house so we can put a new foundation under the corner. Oh, well, then it's a good thing I came along. I'm very proficient at this sort of thing. I can set in the cement. Okay, go set in it. <laughs> as soon as you're hard, we'll roll you under the house. Look, Willie, we'll go away. We're having enough trouble as it is. Fellas, how you doing? Oh, we're doing fine. Thanks to your brother, we got to start all over again. Yeah, look, Curly, you jack up the house, I'll go and mix the cement. Good. What are you going to mix it in? Oh, I don't know. I'll find something around the place. Oh, all right. Go ahead. Philip, you're going to require some help. Just wait till I take my shirt off. No, no. Do I have to look at that purple road map again? Well. <laughs> okay. All right, Willie, latch onto that jack handle and get the pumping. Come on, Tallulah, pump it up, pump it up. Willie, stay on the ground. You're going up with the jack. Hey, Curly, you ready for the cement yet? I'm getting it mixed. Oh, you're getting it mixed, huh? Yeah. What are you mixing it in? I put it in that cement mixer you got on the service porch. A cement mixer on the surface? Elliot, that's my washing machine. <laughs> it is? <laughs> oh, well, that'll give us nice, clean cement. <laughs> Where do you manage to get such stupid friends? I got contacts. <laughs> Don't get excited, honey. It ain't gonna hurt the washing machine. But I had my new girdle in there, and now it's mixed in with the cement. <laughs> well, honey, I guess your foundation is gonna be in the foundation. <laughs> well, I know better than to let you two do this job. I'm going in and shut the machine off before it's completely ruined. She seems to be upset about something, Colonel. Yeah, she'll get over it. You know something? What's that? I think we ought to get that old beam out first. Suppose I tie this rope around it, then the three of us can yank it out, okay? Okay. All right, wait till I get it knotted. I'll just put a sheep shank on this kid. Just it up. There. Now, the three of us just throw the rope over our shoulders and pull. All, All right. One, two, three, heave. <clears throat> you go home, Julius. Can't you see we're busy? You know, this is the first time I've ever seen you guys with your shirts off. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> How do we look, kid? <laughs> What's so funny? You look like tree halibuts in a snowstorm. <laughs> is that so? That's telling him, Willie. <laughs> I didn't know Willie could ad-lib like that. Oh, he's a mule. Oh. <laughs> now, where were we? We were trying to pull the beam out with the rope. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why don't you crawl into the house and knock the beam out with a sledgehammer? Because we're too big to fit under the house, that's why. And where are we going to find somebody stupid enough? <laughs> don't you look at me like that. <laughs> I ain't climbing under no house. Philip, I have an excellent idea. Great. I'll pack your bags. <laughs> Julius has his truck here. Now, why don't we tie the rope to his rear axle and pull the beam out that way? Julius has a rear axle? <laughs> I believe he means the truck, Curly. <laughs> oh, I sort of liked it better the other way. 
Well, what do you think, Philip? Well, let's give it a try. What can we lose? Is it okay with you, Julius? Certainly. Give me the rope. I'll tie it to the truck. Now, never mind. I'm going to tie it on. I'm going to make sure it's good and tight. Oh, sheep shank this kid, too. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what you do, Julius. You go start the motor. Okay. You get it good and tight now, girl. I'm getting it good and tight. No <laughs> Okay, Julius. Let her rip. Curly, where do you suppose Alice and the kitchen are going? (laughs) You know, my mother told me they'd be days like this. (laughs) I remember once she said to me, Philip, she says to me, someday you'll be standing in the driveway and Alice and the kitchen will go by. (laughs) She said that, huh? And when that happens, she says... There's only one thing you can do. Listen closely because she'll be standing in the window singing a verse and two courses of Tosti's Goodbye. Chug chugging at the station. Choo choo train, conductor pull the cord. Choo choo train, you know our destination. All aboard. Choo choo train, chug chugging out by Jiminy. Engineer, choo 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 to two. Smoke smoke, my puffing up the chimney. We're on route. Pour to fix the room, and pour to bring some ice. Pour to get a broom, sweep out the shoes and rice. Pour to thanks a lot, you've been so very nice. Pour to tell you what, here's a quarter, shoo shoo porter. Choo choo train, please pardon us for hiding. I'll explain in case you didn't guess. Choo choo train, it's heaven to be riding. The honeymoon express. Porter fix the room. Mrs. Harris. Oh, Mr. Strong, your men did a beautiful job repairing the house. Yes, yes, everything looks fine. The paper hanger? He will? Tomorrow morning? 
Oh, well, I'd better get downtown and finish selecting the wallpaper. Well, thanks a lot for calling, Mr. Strong. Goodbye. Who was that, honey? Mr. Strong, the contractor. And you'll be so happy to know that when you and Elliot got through fixing the beam, it only cost another $3,800 to fix the rest of the house. Well, that seems pretty reasonable. Don't it, Elliot? Oh, sure, as long as you put it in a charred barrel and rock it once a month as a chemical reaction. <laughs> Elliot! <laughs> What's the matter? Hey, Alice, wait a minute. Where are you going? Downtown to do some shopping. And Phil? Yeah, honey? While I'm gone, don't fix anything. Please? We won't, baby. We'll just sort of... Stand around. <laughs> Stand around quiet, huh? What's the matter with her? <laughs> ah, she's a little burned up. Contractor charged her 3800 bucks. For one little beam? Yeah. Of course, he threw in the windows and the door and put the kitchen back where it was. <laughs> I'd have done it for half. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'll get that little. All right. Yes? I'm from Kerwin's decorating shop. I got some wallpaper for you. Okay, buddy. Put it down over there. Yeah. Say, uh, this is where Alice Fay lives, isn't it? That's right. Hey, uh, you don't suppose... Well, could I get her autograph or something? Yeah, you could, but she's out right now. Oh, darn it, I never have any luck. I'm, uh... Bill Harris. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of anxious to see her in person. I'm a fan of hers. I'm Phil Harris. <laughs> I listen to her radio show every week. Her radio show? Gee, when she sings them love songs, it's like she was singing them straight to me. Hey, buddy. I'm Phil Harris. <laughs> you told me three times. Do you know Mr. Fam Miss Famister? Slightly. She does my laundry. Of course I know her. I'm related to her. Well, you ought to be proud, mister. You sure got a beautiful daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Wise paper carrier. <laughs> daughter. Hmm. You leave the chin strap off one night and you start to sag. <laughs> Alone, that to Andy Devine. Um, hey, Elliot, the wallpaper's here. What wallpaper? Oh, oh, I forgot to tell you, Alice is having new paper put up in the living room. Well, let's go. Where? Let's start putting up the wallpaper. Okay, I'll go. Wait a minute. <laughs> Not so fast, Cleet. <laughs> What's the matter now, Curly? We ain't hanging no wallpaper. We ain't? Look. We put in a $20 beam, and it cost Alice $3,800, so we ain't putting up no wallpaper. Curly, what's the hanging wallpaper? You stick it on a wall. Look, Elliot, let's face it. We're a couple of clever kids, but we don't know how to hang no wallpaper. How do you know? Did you ever try? No. You see what I mean? <laughs> you could be the greatest wallpaper hanger since Michelangelo. <laughs> but you're never going to know unless you try. Yeah. That mic could really throw that paste around. 
I think you got something, kid. Well, that's what I keep telling you. We couldn't do no damage, could we? Us? <laughs> what a preposterous idea. Well, then let's give it a whirl. Look, you go out in the garage and get a couple of ladders, and I'll mix up a batch of paste. Okay, easy on the vermouth. Hey, Curly, I don't want to say anything, but ain't this kind of funny paper for a living room? Red barns, blue horses, green cows, all them different colored animals? Look, Alice knows more about this than we do, so start putting it up and don't ask so many questions, huh? Put okay, it up. Okay, Mr. Angelo. Suppose you get up on that ladder and start on the space over the door. Okay. Hey, Elliot. Huh? Hand me that bucket of paste. Okay. Here you are. Careful now. Don't spill it. That's filled clear to the top. Anybody home? I brought the groceries. Hey, we're in here, Julius, but don't come in. If you open that door, you'll knock me off this ladder. You mean if I open the door like this? Now, look at that mess. Paste all over the place. And look at that big sloppy blob right in the middle of the rug. I'll thank you to stop insulting me. (laughs) Look at me. I'm covered from head to foot with white paste. (laughs) What are you laughing at, you knothead? He looks like the bride on top of a wedding cake. Curly, do something. Get this paste off me. It's beginning to get stiff. What's the matter with you anyway, Julius? Don't you want to grow up to be a human being? Curly, will you please get this stuff off me? I can't move my arms now. Will you keep quiet a minute, Elliot? This boy needs a talking to Talk him. to him later. Get this paste off of my face. It's starting to harden around my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Are you through talking, Elliot? I guess he is. Hey, wait a minute now, Julius. He ain't kidding. Look at him. Feel him. Ooh, he's as hard as a rock. How am I going to soften him up? Why don't you soak him in typentine overnight? Why don't you go home? This is serious. Just look at the condition poor Elliot's in. Well, he ought to be ashamed of himself getting stiff so early in the afternoon. (laughs) Come on, fellas. (laughs) All right, all right. Got to do something about that kid. How you feeling, Elliot? Would you mind rephrasing that? <laughs> all right, all right. Now, take it easy. I'll get some hot water and soften you up. And in no time, you'll be the same old Elliot and I... Come to think of it, is that what we want? <laughs> all right, I was... 
it's only I'm only kidding. I'll get the stuff off you, and then we can start paper in this room. You get it. <laughs> ah, there she is, Elliot. All paper. Yep. All done, man. Hey, look at it. Hmm. Looks pretty too, don't it? Yo, Curly. Ain't this paper kind of morbid for a living room? What's morbid? What are you talking about? It looks great. Yeah, but... Well, look at all those dead animals laying on their backs with their feet sticking up in the air. <laughs> what are you, crazy or something? There ain't no dead... Elliot, you flea brain, you put that paper on upside down. <laughs> no, we're never going to be able to get it off. What am I going to do about Alice? Teach her to walk on her hands? Oh. <laughs> it's a good thing you didn't do the whole room. Look at my side. Looks fine, don't it? I can't tell. It's too dark to see. You know that wallpaper sure darkened up the room. That's just because the shades are down. Go over to the window. And pull up the shades. Okay. Curly. Yeah. You sure you had windows in this room? <laughs> oh, no. You papered over the windows. Elliot, how stupid can a guy be? Now I'm going to have to go outside and find the windows. I'll be right back. Elliot. What? I won't say nothing about your windows if you don't say nothing about my door. <laughs> now you know how stupid a guy can be. All right. It ain't funny. We got to find that door if we want to get out of here. Phil? Phil, where are you? Oh, no, no. It's Alice. Now, let's not say nothing and maybe she'll go away. Are you in the living room, Phil? I want to show you... Hey, that's a clever girl. She found the door. What in the world is going on here? Oh, no. My beautiful living room. Look at it. I knew you'd like it, honey. Oh, Phil, why did you do it? Oh, wait a minute, honey. Wait a minute. What's so terrible about it? We'll trim the paper off the windows and get the paper off the door. And, and... give the animals some vitamins so they stand up. <laughs> It's not that bad, honey. It's not that bad. It's not only crooked, upside down and backwards. It also happens to be the paper I picked out for the girls' playroom. Bye. 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 Alice and Phil will be back in just a moment. RCA Victor's new 45 extended play records give you more music for less money. Almost 15 minutes per record. They make the Victrola 45 phonograph a better buy than ever. It's the simplest automatic phonograph made. All play and no work. You can listen to an hour and a half of your favorite music without changing a record. Listen to the Victrola 45 phonograph with the economical new 45 EP records at your RCA Victor dealers tomorrow. This is Phil again. 
Last year, motor vehicle accidents led the list as the nation's number one accident killer. Too many of us think that... Too many of us still think of accidents as striking only the other fellow. We forget that each of us could be the victim of an accident through our own thoughtlessness or carelessness. So no matter where you drive, drive carefully. Thank you, and good night. Good night, everybody. Included in this program transcribed was High Everback, the part of Julius was played by Walter Tetley. This was an NBC Radio Network production. program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston and Phil Harris and his orchestra. The orchestra opens a program with the title tune from the picture Something to Sing About. Back in the year 1904, Mr. H.W. Kircher of Kankakee, Illinois, happened to be visiting in Buffalo. He attended a pure food show and discovered a new product he had never heard of before. It was called Jell-O. He took a package home and gave it to his best girl who made a dessert out of it. That was 33 years ago. And listen to what Mr. Kircher says today. Later, after we were married, we always served Jell-O, and we're still serving it. I just want you to know about one of your customers. I don't know how many packages I've purchased, but there have been thousands in my home anyway. Well, we call that real loyalty, and Jell-O must be good to hold its friends for over 30 years. Jell-O was a great treat 30 years ago, but it's an even greater treat now, for the only changes that have been made in Jell-O are those that have made it even better. Today, Jell-O brings you a new delicious extra-rich fruit flavor, a full-bodied real fruit goodness that's supremely satisfying. Order Jell-O from your grocer tomorrow. Look for those big red letters on the box. They spell Jell-O. That was something to sing about, played by Phil Harris and his orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you that favorite of men, women, and children, especially men and children, Jack Benny. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking. And Don, that was an awfully nice introduction, up to the word especially. You know, I don't do so bad with the ladies either. Oh, I didn't mean that, Jack. I just feel that you're not as romantic as some of the other male stars in Hollywood, and I thought I'd point it out. Well, it's not nice to point. <laughs> but let's forget that, Don. I've got something to tell you that's much more important, a real surprise. Oh, yes? What is it? Well, for a long time, I've been intending to make a certain move been a, on my mind for weeks, and yesterday I did it. I'm like a kid with a new toy. Why? What did you do? Well, I finally traded in my car. 
<laughs> you know my car. You know the one I've been driving around all the time. The Stanley Steamer? <laughs> yep, yep, the old Stanley. <laughs> well, it's about time you got rid of it. Now, wait a minute, Don. I know I've had it for a long while, but that car was in very good condition, and I've never had one bit of trouble with it. Well, then why did you trade it in? Well, I'll tell you, Don. I thought it was a little bit too old-fashioned for a young fellow like me. You know how it is why the girls won't even look at you nowadays unless you put on a flash. So I traded it in. Well, that's fine, Jack. What did you get? A Maxwell. <laughs> oh, it's a honey. A Maxwell? Well, they haven't made those in ten years. Oh, it isn't new, Don. It's been used, but it's in... Really, it's... It's in swell shape. Wait till you see it. Oh, I'd like to. What color is it? Well, it's a sort of a plaid. It's, uh... It's been painted several times, you know. It's a coupe, you know. Oh, a coupe. Is it convertible? What's that, Don? Is it convertible? Oh, sure. I can get my money back on it anytime. <laughs> oh, yes. No, no, Jack. Is it convertible? Does the top go up and down? Oh, all the time, Don. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got a lot of pep, believe me. Hey, Jack, what's this I hear about your new car? Oh, yes, Phil, I got it right downstairs. You ought to see it. Eh? So you finally got rid of that old tub, huh? Yeah. What did you get? A Maxwell. A Maxwell? What is it, a foreign car? <laughs> no, Phil, it's a Maxwell. It was made right here in this country. Well, gee, they ought to advertise. <laughs> Well, to tell you the truth, Phil, they haven't made them for quite a while, but the one I've got is pretty modern. It's right up there with the best of them, you know. Have you got a radio in it? No, but there's a Victrola on the steering wheel. <laughs> of course, it only plays when I'm turning corners. Oh. <laughs> Jack, I can't understand a guy like you buying a second-hand car. Why didn't you get one of the new ones, a 1938 model? Oh, before you get delivery on them, you get tired waiting, you know. But with a second-hand car, it's different. There's no delay. You walk on the lot, pick the one you want, they tow it out, and there you are. <laughs> well, all I can say is, a car as old as that can't be very easy riding. Oh, no? Well, ask Mary. She was out in it. Hey, Mary! Yeah? Come here a minute. You were out in my car, weren't you? Uh-huh. Oh, you ought to see it, fellas. Jack and I drove all the way to Santa Barbara and back. Yes, sir. Boy, am I stiff. <laughs> yeah, stiff. That car runs plenty smooth, and you know it. Then why did you strap me in the seat? <laughs> because I never knew what minute we were going to take off. <laughs> anyway, when a fella asks you for a ride, you don't have to be so critical. Not critical, but gee, after a ride like that. Yeah. Were you badly shaken up, Mary? I'll say. Now I know what a malted milk goes through. <laughs> oh, it wasn't as bad as that, Mary. You know, we went clear to Santa Barbara and back without a bit of trouble. Oh, yeah? What about that door that fell off? Well, that was your fault. You leaned on it. <laughs> And anyway, any car that can make a 90-mile trip without stopping for gas or oil must be okay. How long did it take you, Jack? Well, uh... We started Tuesday. Quiet. <laughs> it took us about five hours, Don, but we were bucking the wind. <laughs> anyway, it was a very pleasant drive, whether Mary liked it or not. I did like it, oh. and I've got black and blue marks to prove it. <laughs> well, you guys can laugh, but I'm satisfied with my little Maxie. <laughs> Hiya, fellows. Hello. Hello, Hello Jenny. Hello. <laughs> oh, boy. You want to see what I saw downstairs? 
What? Huh? A car, gee, I see the crowd standing around it. The crowd? Are they admiring the car, Kenny? No, they're waiting to see the guy that would ride in it. <laughs> oh, they are. Well, Kenny, for your information, that car belongs to me. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it does. If you don't happen to like it, you don't have to make any smart crap. Oh, excuse me, Jack. I, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I think your car is swell. Well. <laughs> now, look here, Kenny. Control yourself. You're here to sing and nothing else, so go ahead and do it. <laughs> okay. Wait a minute. See who that is, Mary. Telegram for Jack Benny. Take it, Mary. Uh, what are you going to sing tonight, Kenny? I'm going to sing that old feeling. Oh, look, Jack. This wire's from a vaudeville agent in New York. Well, what does it say? Uh, Jack Benny Hollywood can offer your car three weeks at Paramount Theater. <laughs> ah, you see? I knew that was a good investment. I know what I'm doing. Think, Kenny. Mary, wire him that I go with the car, will you? I saw you last night and got that old feeling when you came inside. I got that old feeling The moment that you danced by I felt a thrill And when you caught my eye My heart stood still Once again I seemed to feel that old yearning and I knew the spark of love was still burning. There'll be no new romance for me. It's foolish to start for that Last night my heart was so gay Then suddenly something had happened to me And I found my heart beating so fast I saw you there and got that That you danced by, I felt a thrill. And when you caught my eye, my heart stood still. Again, I seemed to feel that old yearning. I knew the Spark of love was still burning. There'll be no new 
Keeling from Vogue's 1938, sung by Kenny Baker in his usual fine style. Kenny, your stock just went up three points. Thanks, Jack. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for our feature attraction tonight, we are going to present something of a more legitimate nature. <laughs> something... <laughs> Kenny, I warned you. Oh, boy, what a car. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Kenny. I've stood for just about enough. And that goes for everybody in this company. I don't want to hear another word about my car, and that's final. Now, let's change the subject. Ladies and gentlemen, Jell-O is not only inexpensive and easy to make, but it tastes twice as good as ever before. It comes in six delicious flavors, strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. Thank you, Don. Oh, that's all right, Jack. Yes. Hmm. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as I said before, tonight, we are going to present something of a more legitimate nature, something very unhokey. We are offering... We are offering our version of 20th Century's Fox's recent film success, Wife, Doctor, and Nurse. Please, Mr. Zanuck. <laughs> now, as you may remember, this picture... This picture starred Loretta Young, Warner Baxter, and Virginia Bruce. I will play Warner Baxter's part, the doctor. And I'll be the nurse. That's right, Mary. And I invited Loretta Young to play the part of my wife. What did she say, Jack? Oh, who needs her? (laughs) Oh, I don't know, Jack. You'd like to have Loretta Young play that part. Now, wait a minute, Phil. Don't be too sure. There are a lot of girls who are much more beautiful than Loretta Young. Aw, Jack. (laughs) No, I don't mean you. Well, name one. Go ahead. Name one. Well, the scene of our little play (laughs) is the office and clinic of Dr. Benny, the famous physician and surgeon. You know, folks, I can hardly wait till I play this part. It's right up my alley. Oh, Kenny. Yes, Jack? Uh, run out and get me a mustache. I want to look like Warner Baxter. Okay. Get him a face, too. <laughs> no worry. I'll look all right. Hurry with that mustache, Kenny. I can't do a thing without it. Huh? Well, Jack, if the part in our play tonight is so important, why didn't you grow a real one? I did, Don. I did grow a mustache, but it looked like an eyebrow, and I kept winking my mouth. <laughs> Oh, it was awful, huh? Well, that must have been annoying. Well, I didn't mind that, but when the doctor told me my teeth needed glasses, I thought that was too much. <laughs> anyway, this play will go on immediately after the next number. Oh, Phil, uh, uh, play something apropos, will you? You know, something that will put us in a medical mood. Oh, we'll jangle your nerves, all right. Well, you probably will, yeah. <laughs> Gee, Phil, the way you run down your orchestra, goodness, isn't there, isn't there one good man in your band? Yes, the guitar player is swell. The guitar player, well, gee, he isn't so important. He is, too. He marshals my hair. <laughs> you do? Well, I must make an appointment with him. My hair needs a wave, doesn't it, Mary? Yeah, but you better do it quick. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I got all the hair I need. You have? Then what's that shiny spot in the back? That's where he parks his car. Oh. <laughs> it is not. That's where I used to worry. And, Mary, I told you to lay off my car. It's my property. I bought it. And I'm the one that has to make the payment. Payment? I thought it came in a box of Cracker Jack. Well, I suppose that doesn't cost money. <laughs> anyway, we're wasting a lot of time. Let's get in the mood for our sketch. Play something, Phil, while I get into my stethoscope. Mary, have you seen my white jacket any place? Come on. 
Free from Dreaming, played by Phil Harris and his MDs, Musical Demons. And now for our play, Wife, Doctor, and Nurse. The opening scene... Hey, it's... Jack. Yes, Kenny. Here's the mustache you sent me for. Isn't it nice? Let's see it. Oh, a pretty green one. <laughs> Kenny, you're the only person in the world that would ever think of buying a green mustache. Ain't it the truth? <laughs> Certainly is. Imagine putting a green mustache under my nose. If I was your upper lip, I'd walk out. Well, it'll have to do. And now for our play, folks. Wife, doctor, and nurse. The opening scene is the office of Dr. Benny, where we find his staff, his nurse, and some assorted patients. Curtain. Music. Hello, Dr. Benny's office. Sorry, the doctor's out doing research work. He's down at Minsky studying anatomy. Goodbye. Minsky's. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Benny's office. What's that? Your husband swallowed a collar button? Well, that's not so serious. Oh, it was in a shirt. Well, I'll tell the doctor. Goodbye. Good morning, doctor. Good morning, Miss Livingston. Is the patient on 503 showing any improvement? Oh, he's much better. This morning he chased me all around the room. Well, he always does that, doesn't he? Yeah, but today he caught me. <laughs> well, we'll have to discharge him. Say, doctor, are we operating on Mr. Wilson today? Yes, doctor, yes. But first we must take another X-ray. Uh, what does this chart read, Miss Livingston? Uh, here it is. He has a marked febrile reaction and a high leukostosis. Mm -hmm. But the polynuclear cells and the lymphocytes show no toxic changes. Oh, that's terrible. Terrible. No, doctor, that's good. Oh, is it? <laughs> well, that's fine. Hmm, only two guesses, and I got the wrong one. <laughs> uh, what about Mrs. Smith in 218? Well, doctor, her scoliosis is impaired, but her sonic index is below par. Hmm. What do you think of that? Nothing. You're not going to catch me again. <laughs> I'll be in my office for the next hour. Call me when we're ready for uh, Mr. Wilson. I'll do that, doctor. Oh, Dr. Benny. Yes, Dr. Baker. I wish you'd give me something. I got an awful stomachache. Well, you're a doctor. Why don't you treat yourself? Not me. I charge too much. <laughs> Well, dicker a little. You'll come down. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll be in my office, Miss Livingston. Miss Livingston. Miss Livingston, what's the meaning of this? What? Who put pants on that skeleton? I did. Doesn't he look cute? Cute. Who ever heard of a skeleton with pants? I saw it in Esquire. Well, take them off. Yes, sir. Oh, Doctor, I forgot to tell you, your wife is in the reception room. My wife? Show her right in. I can't. That's the part Loretta Young was supposed to play. Well, get somebody else to play it. We've got to go on. Get anybody. Oh, all right. Hmm, it's a fine how do you do. Uh, this way, Mrs. Benny. Oh, hello, dear. Hello, darling. <laughs> it's a fine substitute. I'm so glad you dropped in, dear. Have you been shopping? Yes, I bought the cutest pink rompers for Junior with little blue pockets. <laughs> oh, for Junior. I can hardly wait till he puts them on. If I'm Junior, I'll scream. Get out of here. Well, darling, run along. I'm very busy. I'll be home early. Oh, you say that every night, and I keep waiting and waiting. <laughs> but this time, I mean it. What are we having for dinner, honey? Oh, chicken pot pie, and I made it with my own little hand. 
Oh, goody, I'll bet it's lousy. <laughs> now, run along, dear. I'm very busy. But first, I gotta have some money. I wanna buy some lingerie. Lingerie? Well, all right, underwear. <laughs> all right, here's $25. Now, go. Oh, wait a minute. Why don't you introduce me to your friend? What friend? That's a skeleton. Skeleton? Yeah. Well, it was his own fault for coming to you. <laughs> now, scram, dear. Get out of here. I got lots of work to do. <laughs> All righty. Goodbye. It's a fine mix-up. I'm so mad I could operate on somebody. <laughs> yes? Oh, doctor, we're all ready for Mr. Wilson. Fine. Get Dr. Baker and Dr. Harris immediately. First, we must have another X-ray to confirm the diagnosis. Prepare everything. Yes, doctor. Well, here we are. Everything set? Yes, doctor. We're all ready, doctor. Well, Mr. Wilson, are you nervous? Uh, no, no, doctor. Not a bit. Well, I am. <laughs> have you had any new symptoms? Uh, no, doctor. I still keep saying strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. <laughs> And you still see those big red letters on the box? Oh, all the time. All the time. It's more serious than I thought. Well, we'll have to take another X-ray. Stand over there a little so you're in focus. Is this all right? Fine. Now, ready for the picture. Turn on the machine. Quiet, everybody. Quiet. Quiet. Quiet on the set. Camera. We're turning. Action. <laughs> Dr. Baker. Notice how high the right diagram, uh, diaphragm is. And the epiglottis is the... <laughs> All right, so I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Dr. Baker, you notice how high the right diaphragm is, and the epiglottis seems to be a little swollen. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Look, Doc, he seems to have hepatic hypertrophy. What's that? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> yes. Oh, Doc, look, he's got coins in his pocket. Don't grab. I saw him first. <laughs> Wait, look at that abnormal shadow on the left side. We must remove it at once. That's his heart. Oh, then that wouldn't be cricket. <laughs> ah, but you notice he has that same epip... That same epip... That same condition. Right. Rush him to the surgery. What's the matter with me, Doctor? Absolutely. We must operate at once. Oh, Doctor, Doctor, we're all out of ether. Out of ether? What do we do? Squeeze Kenny. That's it, let's hurry. Last one in the operating room is a rotten egg. Well, Doctor, how's Mr. Wilson getting along? Fine, fine. Uh, was the operation a success? It certainly was. Liberty Magazine gave it four stars. <laughs> Darn it. What are you mad about? That's two more than they gave my picture. <laughs> Well, I must dash home now. See you in the morning, Miss Livingston. Good night. Oh, wait a minute, Doctor. Before you go, there's a patient been waiting all day to see you. Very well. Send him in. Uh, step right in the office, sir. Thank you, my little light pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Doctor. Hello, Schleppo. My, 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 you got a fancy office with snappy furniture. <laughs> I'll bet you're charging 20. <laughs> no, no, no. My fees are reasonable. $5 for an office visit and $15 if I come to your house. If you catch me home, I deserve it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Schlepp, uh, what seems to be the trouble with you? I don't know, Doctor. One minute I'm hot, the next minute I'm cold, and then I'm ringing wet. Well, 
those are alarming symptoms. When did you first notice them? This morning, when I took a shower. <laughs> well, that's simple. Just give up bathing. You're perfectly all right. No, no, Doc. I don't feel so good. I think you should give me some medicine. But you don't need medicine. You're perfectly normal. But I feel sick in the vitabrake. <laughs> but you're not sick, Slap. You're the picture of health. I'm dying, and he's talking pictures. <laughs> Now, Schlepp, believe me, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, why don't you be more of a salesman? But look, Schlepp, I can't do it. I got prestige. I've got ethics. Who cares what you got? I'm the patient. <laughs> but I don't want to take your money if there's nothing the matter with you. Nothing the matter with me, Miss Hawkins. I got headaches. I got chills. I got pains in my back. I got rheumatism on my arms. And not only that, my feet hurt. Oh, come, come, Schlepp. Why, that's impossible. Impossible? Why? Because... You can't have everything Be satisfied with the little you have I must have everything The way I suffer and the troubles that I have Live, slap, your cares will be forgotten But I feel rotten Just bring me down to Dixie, say hello to Trixie and thus, ladies and gentlemen, ends another one of our highly dramatic offers. Wife, doctor, and nurse. Did you like it? Mm -hmm. Everybody likes the excitement of a thrilling new dessert. And that's what I'm going to tell you about right now. You'll find swell new recipes on every package of Jell-O. A tempting variety of suggestions for all kinds of desserts and salads that will give you many new ideas for planning your winter meals. Here's one delicious dessert called Macaroon Velvet. Made with rich cherry red Jell-O, crushed macaroons, and toasted almonds. It's a grand company dish, but it's inexpensive. Here's another. Fruit Symphony, made with shimmering green lime jello combined with grapefruit, orange, and canned pineapple. The year-round fruit dessert that's lovely to look at and even better to eat. There are lots of other recipe hints on the different jello packages. They're all appetizing and easy, but you must be sure to get genuine jello. For you'll find these recipes only on the jello boxes, and only jello brings you that delicious, extra rich fruit flavor. All six flavors of Jell-O are crammed with luscious, real fruit goodness. Strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. So get the best. Insist on the one and only Genuine Jell-O. number of the fourth program in the new Jell-O series, and we'll be with you again next Sunday night at the same time. I hope you all liked our little play, and that you will all... Answer the phone, Mary. Hello? Yes? Oh, Jack, it's Loretta Young. Well, tell her it's too late. Not for what she has to say. 
Good night, folks. the National Broadcasting Company. When I got the crisp $50 bill in advance, I figured my client had a heart of gold. But after I was beat up, double-crossed, and shot at, I realized just how hard a heart of gold can be. Pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's unusual story, The Heart of Gold. I had spent the day trying to decide how to spend the day. And finally convinced myself Sunday afternoon was a good time to catch up with neglected bookkeeping. But I only got as far as the office door because a special delivery letter was stuck in the mail slot. I ripped it open and watched a crisp $50 bill flutter to the floor. Bending it down with my toe, I turned to the letter which was dated Saturday. Dear Mr. Marlowe, kindly investigate the party who lives at 1903 North Ogden Street to find out if his name is really Elliot Perdue and what his occupation is. Then please come to my residence at 5 tomorrow, Sunday. I live at the home of a friend, Arthur Stewart, 33 Lemonwood Drive in Bel Air. I sincerely hope that $50 will be a sufficient retainer. Truly yours, Helen Asher. Judging from the tone of her letter, it was obvious that Helen Asher didn't hire private detectives very often. Nevertheless, I glanced at my watch, which said I had to work very fast, and I headed for 1903 North Ogden. It turned out to be a small house near Selma Street. I got out of my car and walked up to the door. Good afternoon, sir. You the resident here? That's right. What do you want? I represent the Dr. Potapole of Public Opinion. I'd like to ask you a few questions well, regarding... Sorry, but I don't have any opinions to express. Oh, even the opinions of a man with no opinions are important to us. Now, let's just let me step inside here and get out my notebook. There we are. Uh, all right, but make it fast. Right. Now, what is your occupation? I'm an investment broker. With which firm? I'm uh, independent. I see. And what is your name, sir? What do you need my name for? Well, for my personal records in case I have to come back. Elliot Perdue. Uh-huh. Do you have any hobbies other than horse racing? What's... What do you mean? Those dope sheets and racing forms there on your desk. I'm quite an admirer of horse flesh myself. <laughs> You're quite a character, too, aren't you? Working on Sunday and all? Well, you know how public opinion is. It goes right on rain, shine, or Sunday. Excuse me a moment. Oh, by the way, uh, what's your name? Marlowe. Philip Marlowe. Hey, Mr. Marlowe. Stand still, because I'm not kidding about this gun. I'll beat it back to whoever hired you and tell them they're being very clumsy about a very delicate situation. One more move like this, and they won't get another chance. I knew Perdue meant business, so I left without an argument. Well, at least I had a repeat on the name, Elliot Perdue, my occupation of bookie to cross at Helen Asher when I met her at 5 o'clock. 
In Bel Air, I eventually found 33 Lemonwood Drive. 200 yards of palm trees stood at rigid attention while I drove through the gate and up to the house. When the butler opened the door, he stared at me like my hat was on fire. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, did you did you wish something? Yes. Yeah, I'd like to see Mrs. Asher, please. Mrs. Asher? Oh, good heavens. Uh, Mr. Stewart. What's the matter, Robert? Oh, is why, sir? I'm Philip Marlowe, Mr. Stewart, a private detective. I have an appointment with Mrs. Asher. Is she at home? Oh, Mr. Marlowe, perhaps you can help. I don't know what to do. It's such a terrible thing. What's happened? Upstairs, not five minutes ago, Mrs. Asher shot herself. Shot herself? Please, if you'd come up with me. Yeah, sure, of course. I'm certainly grateful for your help, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, this is her room. Yeah, she's in here. There. Yeah. She's dead, all right. Shot herself in the left temple. Whose gun is that, Mr. Stewart? Well, it's mine. I kept it in the desk downstairs. You find it? No, Roberts did. I was out in the hothouse working with my orchids. You see, I've been out of town... I just came in this morning on the Super Chief from Chicago, and I wasn't expected back until Wednesday. Yeah, uh, look, Mr. Stewart, do you mind telling me how well you knew Mrs. Asher? Oh, very well indeed. Ever since the accident three years ago, she lived in my house under my care. The accident? Yes, that's how she got those uh, scars on her cheek and neck. As you can see, uh, my hands were burned at the same time. Do you mind telling me about it? Well, I was living in Canada at the time. One day, my wife Florence and I went to a camp near Quebec, and we met Helen Asher our first day there. She was a pathetic, lonely woman, a widow. Oh. That very night, while she was visiting us, the oil stove in our cabin exploded. Oh. Florence, my wife, was killed. Mrs. Asher was severely burned. It was ghastly. I can imagine. Mrs. Asher had no one, so I thought the least I could do would be to care for her, since I knew the accident had been caused by sheer carelessness on my part. You took over full responsibility for her? Yes, I did everything I could think of, but she never quite got over the shock of that night, and now, now this, it's horrible. Have you notified the police yet? Uh, no, you no. better do it right now. Uh, yes, I'll go right downstairs and call them. The dead woman on the floor had been beautiful once. No doubt about it. This was my client's. And a certain $50 bill was burning a hole in my pocket. I wandered over to a writing table, and as I looked down, I noticed that the Sunday sheet had been thrown off the memo pad. It bothered me. Tomorrow should mean nothing to a suicide, yet Mrs. Ash's memo pad showed Monday already. The sheet was blank, but on a hunch I tore it off and stuck it in my pocket. I was about to turn away when I saw a book of matches from the Conga Club. So I picked that up, too, and then I left. I drove around for some time trying to figure things out. Then I went down to police headquarters to see one Lieutenant Ibarra. It's suicide as far as we're concerned, Marlowe. Everything checks. Mrs. Asher was despondent and she killed herself. She didn't leave a suicide letter, but they don't always. How'd you get in on this? Well, she paid me 50 bucks in advance to air out a small-time bookie or worse named Elliot Perdue. Incidentally... What's the background on Arthur Stewart? Oh, he's a big money fashion designer. Started his business on his wife's insurance. She died in an accident in Canada. Mm. He did a lot for Mrs. Asher because he felt responsible. Yeah, yeah, I know all that. But was she left-handed? Did Stewart come in on the super chief this morning, and was it the butler that found the body? That's right. We checked it all. Uh, hey, look, Phil, do you have any good reason to think this isn't suicide? No, no, not really. It's just that $50 in advance that bothers me, I guess. Oh, by the way, I've got a piece of paper I'd like the boys in the lab to run a test on, okay? Sure, Casey will fix you up. Uh, Marlon, I figure suicide now, but I can always change my mind. 
I went down the hall of the police laboratory and handed the blank page of the memo pad to Casey. Ten minutes later, he explained that the impression showed a left-handed person had written a number, Bradshaw 7, 7 with a wide-point fountain pen, probably on the page just above the one I'd given him. And I thanked him, dropped four bits in the Christmas fun bottle, and found the phone. I dialed Bradshaw 7, 7 and waited. Hello. Hello. Who's this? The man in the moon. Come up and see me some other time. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I like your voice. And besides, seven seven eleven is a very lucky number. Uh-huh. Three passes in a row. But don't let her fool you, Jack. The answer is no dice. Goodbye. Yes. Well. I gathered she was in no mood for playing, so I decided to be strictly business and dialed again. I let it ring for some time, but Miss Golden Voice obviously wasn't taking any more anonymous calls. I'd left only the long shot, the book of matches I'd found on Mrs. Asher's desk. The conga club was on the Sunset Strip, so I drove out there, found a parking space on a side street nearby, and went in. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, so I paid a buck ten for a scotch and soda worth 40 cents just to help pass the time. An amber spotlight was glistening down on a set of sequin contours that would have melted the ice age down to a fortnight. And she was singing. For wherever my man is, I am here. Forever. Benita, the conga's secret songstress, and I knew something else, too. There was no mistaking that voice. She was the girl with a lucky phone number. I wrote her a note, called a waiter to the table to deliver it, and then sat back to watch her as she glided over and sidled into a chair opposite me. It was your penmanship that intrigued me, Mr. Malone. It was your voice and so forth, mostly the so forth, that got me, Benita. Uh, would you care to decipher the Sanskrit you call a note? The waiter said you wrote it. Sure. It says important business. Uh, that's an idiom. <laughs> if you wanted to talk uh, turkey, how would you translate it? Do you know a woman named Helen Asher? Not that I remember. Why? Uh, your phone number showed up on a memo pad. How do you account for that? How should I know? Maybe she intended to call me up. Look, you're quite a handsome man, Mr. Marlowe. But <laughs> you look silly with your nose bent. Why do you keep sticking it into other people's business? Because besides being paid for it, it sometimes leads to meeting interesting and beautiful people. Present company included. What do you want? Mrs. Asher killed herself tonight. Mrs. Asher's dead? Yeah, yeah. And considering you said you didn't know her, you look very put out about it. All right. I'll let you win. But let's not talk about it here. Finish your drink while I get out of this costume. Then meet me outside by the front door in ten minutes. she headed for the back of the club, I headed for the front. I got out the door and down to my car just in time to see her leave by the stage entrance. She jumped into a yellow convertible, ripped down Sunset Boulevard, turned on to Doheny, and scraped to a halt in front of the region apartments. At the door, a tall, sunburned man popped up from somewhere and intercepted her. It was Elliot Perdue. A short but hot argument took place, and apparently Perdue won, because they went in together. 
I found the name Benita Malone over the mailbox in number five. And got to her apartment door just as the second round started. No, I haven't changed my mind, Elliot. I've been doing a little research since you threw me over, Benita. I've got you and your precious plans right here in the palm of my hand. What are you talking about? This. This little heart-shaped locket on this little golden chain. Let me see oh, that. No, no, no. I'm not showing this trinket until just the right moment. Listen, Elliot. I don't know what's brewing in that slimy brain of yours. But get this. If you try to monkey with my life again, so help me, I'll kill you now. Get out! Benita, would you be interested if I told you that I know Mrs. Asher's secret? And would you be interested if I told you that Mrs. Asher killed herself tonight? That slows you down, doesn't it, bright boy? Yes. But it doesn't stop me, beautiful. I'll be seeing you before you know it. I ducked into an alcove and heard Benita slam the door and produce coattails as he left. So, now I knew that Purdue, a locket, and Benita Malone added up some way to a bullet in the head for a scarred woman with a secret. I went back to my car and drove out to Stewart's house in Bel Air. When you were here before, Marlowe, I was so upset I hardly realized you were a private detective. Now, you had an appointment with Mrs. Asher. Had uh, she hired you? Yes, to investigate someone, but she didn't live long enough to give me the details. Now, what sort of trouble could she have been in to have needed a private detective? I don't know. But perhaps you can help me find out by answering a few questions. Anything. Huh? Anything at all, Mr. Marlowe. Does the name Elliot Perdue mean anything to you, Mr. Stewart? Elliot Perdue? No, I'm afraid not. How about uh, Benita Malone? Well, I've never heard of her. Hmm. You know anything about a heart-shaped locket on a gold chain? A locket? A gold locket? Yeah. And Mrs. Asher had a heart-shaped gold locket. Where'd she keep it? Upstairs in her jewelry box, I should imagine. Come on, let's have a look, huh? Yeah. Right up these stairs here. And this is her room, Marlowe. I know. I was here once before. Why? It, it, it's not here. It's not on her dressing table. Her, her jewelry box, it's gone, Marlowe. But you think that... Hello, Purdue has it. I can't understand this. That's the locket like. What's inside it? Just a picture. It was valued by Mrs. Asher because it was the only one she kept of herself the way she looked before the accident. Now, why would anyone else want that? I don't know. But when we get that locket, we'll get a lot of answers along with it. more convinced than ever that Elliot Perdue, Benita, and the late Mrs. Asher's secret were all dangling from the same chain that supported the gold locket. I said goodnight to Arthur Stewart and started back for Hollywood. But a moment later, I changed my mind and abruptly swung onto a shadowed side road and parked lights out. It had suddenly occurred to me that a gallivanting Mr. Perdue might call on Stewart. And if so, I wanted to be on hand. Forty minutes later, I was about to call off the cloak and dagger routine when I, I heard the sound of a powerful motor roaring out of Stewart's driveway. I looked up just in time to see a long black mash whip by with Stewart at the wheel. From the speed of the car, I was certainly wasn't going out to the morning papers. I decided to go back to the house and question the butler while I could have him to myself. Oh, why, no, Mr. Marlowe, I haven't any idea where Mr. Stewart went. I only know that he had a telephone call, after which he dashed out of the house highly upset. Well, maybe some sick friend needed sitting up with, huh? But tell me, Roberts, did you ever hear of a man named Elliot Perdue? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, he called on Mrs. Asher here once or twice while Mr. Stewart was away on business. When did you last see this, Mr. Perdue, Roberts? Uh, yesterday morning, sir, about 10 o'clock. Hmm. 
And one thing more, did you ever see Mrs. Asher wearing a gold locket, a heart-shaped one? Oh, quite often, sir. As a matter of fact, she asked me about it just yesterday morning, shortly after Mr. Perdue left. She couldn't locate it anyplace. A singular coincidence, huh? Oh, by the way, what do you know about a singer named Benita? Benita? Uh, I've never heard of her, sir. Are you sure she's never been out here as Mr. Stewart's guest? Why, I'm positive, sir. Uh, Mr. Stewart never has any ladies out here of any kind. Oh? Doesn't that strike you as being strange, Robert? After all, Mr. Stewart's a very eligible widower. Widower, yes, Mr. Marlowe, but philanderer, no. Good night, sir. As I drove back to Hollywood, I tried to figure out where Arthur Stewart had gone. But I had about as much to work with as Gypsy Rose Lee after a third encore. And after discounting Benita's place in the Conga, there was only Elliot Perdue's house on North Ogden. Fifteen minutes later, I walked up to it, but the place was as dark and as quiet as the inside of a coffin. I was about to turn back to my car when suddenly I caught the reflection of a sliver of light bouncing off the glass in Mr. Perdue's living room. I found the back door lock easy to bluff. A moment later, I stepped into the living room. Hello. How, how did you know I was here? Mr. Stewart told me. You're a liar. Arthur wouldn't... Arthur? Uh, I... Well, you see, Mr. Stewart and I... Oh, I... no, it's Mr. Stewart, huh? Wait a minute, there's someone outside. Purdue. Put out your light. Now, when he finds you, keep talking, say anything. I'll be behind the door. She can't hear you. Well, Benita. <laughs> what a waste of time, my dear. While you've been here rearranging my socks, I've been talking to your boyfriend with the locket safely tucked away right here in my breast pocket. How clever of you. How absolutely ingenious. It's a bit late for nasty words between us, Benita, because possession of you was part of the bargain I struck with Mr. Stewart. You see, we... What are you staring at? My big blue eyes, but two. Don't move or I'll blast you. You'll do nothing. Don't... Get the gun, Benita. Now, for two, we'll play some more. <laughs> Now the gentleman's breast pocket. Ah, here it is, Benita. Safe and sound. Which is just the way I want it, Phil. What? My own gun. Why, you beautiful the snake. The logic, Marlowe. Come on, I get nervous with one of these things in my hand. Throw it here. Thank you. Now when I leave, Phil, don't come after me. Because I'd hate to fill you full of little holes. Good night, dear. Benita stepped out of that house. I solemnly swore I wouldn't trust another woman for the next hundred years. But a groan from the body on the floor brought me back to 1948 and Elliot Perdue. I knew that he had seen the picture in the locket, so I went to work on him. Come on, Perdue, snap out of it. Come on. Huh? Oh, it's you, Marlowe. Who'd you expect, St. Peter? What was in the locket, Perdue? I don't remember. Maybe a call on Lieutenant Ibarra will refresh your memory. I doubt it. Then we better start playing games again. We'll start with one called Slap Slap Perdue. No, no, let me alone, Marlowe. Get your hands off me. Uh, you ready to start singing, huh? All we need now is the right lyrics. Oh, come on, Perdue, talk. Stop it, stop it, I'll talk. Good. Now, why did Mrs. Asher kill herself? Because she had a good reason. Like what? That's uh, a long story. Make it short. Okay, Marlowe. Here goes. <laughs>
Marlow, he brought her. There's a five-minute-old corpse lying in his living room at 1903 North Ogden. Name is Elliot Perdue. Three shots through a closed window. I was lucky. Any description of the killer? No, none. Now, look, Ibarra, right now I'm going after a songbird named Benita Malone at the Regent Apartments on Doheny. Will you cover me there without sirens? Sure, Marlow. I'll attend to it in person. It was only a healthy centerfielder's peg from Perdue's house to Benita's. When I got there, the place was dark and a car wasn't in sight. I decided to try the Conga Club. But as soon as I walked in, I began to worry because if Benita had wanted to get rid of that lock, she'd have had enough time to bury it at Forest Lawn. But I didn't know Benita because Miss Oomph herself was singing in the amber spotlight. And dangling from her soft white neck was the heart-shaped gold locket. I love you. Because he's wonderful. Because he's just mine. She caught my eyes. She smiled like a maitre d'. And the moment she was through with her song, she headed back in my direction. But before she got to me, I saw her give the high sign to an ape in a tuxedo. He looked at her and then across toward my table and left the room. I watched Benita glide across the floor in my direction. She was distinctly a thing of beauty. Well, Phil, what do you think of my singing? Oh, I'm just crazy about it. That and your jewelry. Especially that locket, family heirloom. Mm-hmm. It was more or less handed down to me, generation to generation. That's an old uh, Spanish custom. Yeah, yeah, so I've been told. And I imagine tradition prohibits your parting with it, huh? That's right. Unless, of course, someone someone with oodles of money offers me lots of it in exchange. Then naturally I'd be obliged to part with it. I don't think you'd feel obliged to your mother on the second Sunday in May. Besides, I don't have oodles of money. Oh, you should have told me that earlier. Goodbye, good looking. Hey, wait a minute. We couldn't do any business in a minute. And don't follow me if you want to stay pretty. She pivoted on a spike heel and took off for a dressing room, and I knew that if I followed, I was scheduled for a nasty tete-a-tete with an ape in a tuxedo. When I made the lower floor and saw that the long corridor to her room was empty, I knew the setup. The ape would be on the other side of the door waiting. Benita still had my gun, so I got the nearest substitute for a blackjack, a full bottle of Paul Masson champagne. Then I walked noisily down the corridor as far as her door and knocked. Turned the knob slowly, kicked the door open, and stood clear. It worked. The ape's hairy hand was wrapped around my gun, and it came down in a knot that was never interrupted. And that left him on balance. <laughs> hit the floor, and before Benita had a chance to close her mouth, I ripped the locket from my neck, picked my gun up, and ran. I didn't stop until I collapsed against the store window. Then I opened up the locket. Two minutes ran out of me before I realized what was wrong with the picture. Then I knew. Arthur Stewart's home in Bel Air was my next stop. <laughs> Thirty minutes later, I pulled up away from the place and parked. And keeping in the shadows, I approached the house where only the library and an upstairs bedroom showed any light. The library had French windows. When I moved up close, I was startled by the sight of a figure going through Stuart's desk. I stepped into the room and found it was my little friend, Benita. 
I've got my own gun again, Benita. Still. Oh, doing a little dusting, honey? Oh, don't be funny. I'm not trying to. How is it you're not upstairs helping Stuart pack? Because I've already finished packing, Mr. Marlowe, and don't turn around. That was well done, Benita. Oh, fine. Sucked in by a little decoy sprinkled with sequins. Never mind the pose, Marlowe. Just toss your gun on the couch over there. Now. Uh, that's better. You know, Marlowe, I can't say that I'm very sorry for you. I don't expect condolences from a character who murdered a woman this afternoon and a man this evening. You killed Mrs. Asher? Yes. And that blackmailing scum for you as well. But both murders were very necessary, Benita. Even as Marlowe's here will be. Come over here, Benita. Behind me. Hurry, Arthur. Let's get out of here. Hurry. And now, Mr. Marlowe, it's time for you. Well. <laughs> Thanks, Benita. You swing a beautiful bookend. You know, I had you figured all wrong. No, don't mention it, dear. I heard the cops coming anyway. You sweet child. We're in here. He borrowed all of us. Oh, I figured you'd be out here when he didn't show up at that songbird's place. Well, what's this? A little man on the floor with a large bump on his head is Arthur Stewart. The man who killed Elliot Perdue to keep him from telling me the truth about Mrs. Asher. And the man who killed her this afternoon. So Mrs. Asher didn't commit suicide after all. No, but she wasn't murdered either. She died in that accident in Canada three years ago. What are you talking about? Well, the woman that Stewart killed here this afternoon wasn't Mrs. Asher. It was his wife, Mrs. Florence Stewart. You see, there must have been a mix-up in identifying the bodies of the two women at the time of the accident. Mm-hmm. Stewart and his wife had Mrs. Asher buried as Mrs. Stewart. And they collected the insurance neat, huh? Yeah. But what happened? Yeah, it's simple. Stewart got bored with his scarred and unattractive wife, and he started running around with choice little numbers. Like Benita here. Still honest, I didn't know a thing about this. Stewart told me that Mrs. Asher depended on him so heavily that she'd be crushed at his seeing another woman... But I didn't know she was his wife. Marlowe, how do you figure this all out? From a locket that belonged to the woman we knew as Mrs. Asher. It had a picture of Stuart and Mrs. Asher taken in dress clothes before she was scarred. Yet Stuart claimed that he and his wife had only met Mrs. Asher the day of the accident. And on a camping trip at that. But, Phil, I saw the picture, too, and I didn't figure that out. That's because you were too busy trying to figure just how much the locket was worth to Arthur Stewart. Or to anybody. In cold cash. You were blinded by all the dollar signs in front of your eyes, baby. Why, Phil, how can you say such things? Now, Marlowe, just so I don't toss and turn all night, tell me just why you were hired in the first place. Well, Ibarra, it goes something like this. When Purdue knew that he was losing Benita to Stewart, he decided to check up on the opposition. And he not only found out what he wanted to know, but he found out a lot of things, too, that he didn't want to know. Mrs. Stewart, the late Mrs. Asher, became suspicious of his questioning. And incidentally, of her husband. So she sent for me. Well, Marlowe Stewart certainly had me fooled. I doped him out to be a very generous guy, a great benefactor who was doing the right thing for a lonely, unfortunate woman. Yeah. Looked like he had a heart of gold, all right. But a funny thing, Ibarra... In the end, it was this heart of gold, this locket here that got him. <laughs> Mind if I keep it? Not at all. You had a tough enough time getting hold of it. Good night, Phil. Well, by the time I got back to my apartment on Franklin, the sky was beginning to fill with the soft gray of morning. I pulled the blinds down in my bedroom and 
sat down for a last cigarette. I had mixed with a lot of funny people that day. But for some cockeyed reason, I kept thinking of Benita Malone, a girl who was no better than she had to be. Finally, I put her out of my mind, and I was about to turn off the desk lamp when I noticed my memo pad. Still that Sunday, which was understandable. But scrawled across the top sheet was a telephone number. And I couldn't figure how it got there. It was written in crimson lipstick. Bradshaw 7. 7-11. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Featured in tonight's cast, were Gloria Blondell, John Daner, Jack Moyles, and Ben Wright. Detective Lieutenant Ibarra was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was conceived and conducted by Richard O'Rant. Be sure to be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... They were all after it. An importer, a beautiful woman, a nut, and a guy I couldn't figure out. But before we were through, one was in the hospital, two were in the morgue, and the fourth was waiting for the hangman. All that because of a blue burgonette. Something I'd never even heard of before. Dr. Fabian, the ship's doctor in cabin B-13, tells a new story of danger in far ports tonight over most of the CBS network stations. Tonight's story, The Island of Coffins, is another original drama by John Dixon Carr, famed mystery writer. You can hear it when the ship's whistles sound outside cabin B-13. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.